Brasham College presents The Prevention of Cancer by Professor Christopher Whitty. This evening um, I'm going to talk about the prevention of cancer and for those of you who came to my last talk or who are going to be able to watch it online, uh, that was about uh, survival from cancer and how you treat it. Uh, on this occasion I'm going to be talking about how you actually prevent it and I think very few people would disagree uh, with the conception that for cancer prevention is far better than cure. When this Gresham College was founded, cancer was substantially less common than it is today uh, and was diagnosed even less frequently than that. I've chosen uh, here a, uh, a page from the Bills of Mortality, one of the extraordinary things that the UK did in terms of its general public health. Uh, from 1634, a little bit after the college started, but there would be uh, a lot of similarities. And at that point, of all the deaths recorded in London, uh, less than 1% were actually ascribed to cancer. At the same time, fevers, for example, uh, and uh, diseases such as smallpox, killed very many more. Probably some of the other diseases hid some cancers amongst them. So consumption, for example, which is generally thought of as TB, probably had some cancer cases within them. Nevertheless, cancer was a considerably rarer disease than it is now, because now it causes around about 30% of all deaths in the UK. But whilst cancer itself was rarer, many of the debates I'm going to go through in the second half of this talk would have been remarkably familiar to people at the time this college was founded. So if you look at the first Gresham Professor of Physics, Matthew Gwynne, he actually got his MD, his medical degree, uh, from actually talking about whether, cancer, whether uh, the frequent use of tobacco was beneficial. And he argued that case in front of the first really serious anti-tobacco campaigner, James VI and I of England and Scotland, uh, who wrote a famous book called A Counterblast to Tobacco. Uh, this quotation on the right is, uh, I think, a very nice summary of King James's view. Uh, a custom loathsome to the eye, hateful to the nose, harmful to the brain, and dangerous to the lungs. Two of those are value judgments, and two of them are scientifically correct. Uh, Dr. Gwynne went on to become the commissioner for inspecting tobacco in, after he'd stepped down from it by being Gresham Professor of Physics. And the third Gresham Professor of Physics was on the board of the uh, London Virginia Company, which helped to popularise tobacco. So we have a long but not necessarily glorious form uh, in this area. If you look at the place of cancer in the UK, and we are very typical for high-income countries, uh, if you look over the last decade... There has been a stunning decrease in uh, cardiovascular diseases, particularly heart disease and stroke. And that's an enormous public health achievement. But because of that, people who in 200 years ago would have died of infections and 50 years ago or 40 years ago would have died of heart disease are going on to live to be old enough to get cancer. And cancer is now therefore a major part of mortality for both men and women, although the cancer's rates vary slightly between them. If you look at the overall mortality from cancer in the UK, it's a combination of two things. The incidence, how common the cancer is, and the survival, what the chances are of continuing to live a reasonable life having had the diagnosis, and that's basically around treatment. So in the last lecture, I was talking almost exclusively around survival, and today I'm going to talk about how we can reduce the incidence of cancer. And I think most people have a belief incorrectly that cancer is just something that happens. In fact, Cancer Research UK uh, estimates that around 42% of all cancers in the UK are preventable. Some of them, as we'll go on to, are easily preventable, some of them are preventable if you choose to, uh, and some of them, uh, the prevention is uh, rather more difficult. But uh, prevention is certainly possible for a substantial number of the cancers we currently have. Now, let's just look at how common diseases, these the cancers are in the UK. Uh, and I'm starting here with the cancers of women. And the major cancers uh, that women uh, get, so remember this is incidence, this is getting a cancer, not dying from a cancer, start off with breast cancer, then lung cancer, colorectal cancer, 
uterine cancer and melanoma of the skin are the top five. All of those can either be largely or, com or completely prevented, uh, although how easy it is to do uh, is uh, very uh, variable. Um, if we move on to uh, the uh, cancers of men, uh, prostate cancer, the commonest cancer in men, uh, is actually not very easy to, pre to prevent. There is really nothing that we've seen that is, uh, makes a big impact on it. But then we come on to lung, colorectal cancer, bladder cancer, uh, and uh, for those, at least some things will help to reduce the incidence. So for really quite a lot of the common cancers, we have the chance, the, the, the capacity significantly to reduce how common they are. And I think linked to this, some of the least treatable cancers are actually the most preventable ones. Uh, and I'll go on to talk in particular about two right at the bottom of this slide, uh, lung cancer uh, and esophageal cancer, where um, this is a slide which shows how treatment has changed since uh, 1971 up to the present era. And as you can see, for very many cancers, survival from the cancer is now very good compared to where it was, and in fact, in absolute terms. But for certain diseases, uh, uh, the survival has not improved much, and many of these are ones where prevention is a very realistic possibility. If you look at the age-standardised UK cancer incidence, it has been gradually drifting up over time, largely because, as I say, people have not been dying of other things. But the more important thing is to look at cancer incidence by age. And the single most important risk factor for many cancers is age. Not all, but most. And of course, that you can't change. And as people, as the country is ageing, we would expect the number of cancers to go up just because of this effect. More in men than in women, those will come on to uh, I think that difference will probably decrease over time. And this just tells us where the cancer burden is therefore likely to fall in the UK. And it is not largely going to be in the big urban centres because, as we talked about in a lecture on demography some time ago, uh, people in the UK tend to move into cities when they're young adults and move out of cities in early middle age and therefore, the demography of the cities of the UK remains remarkably stable over the next 20 years, but therefore the rest of the country ages a lot faster. So there's going to be a disparity in the country as to where the cancers are going to be. They're not going to be evenly distributed across the whole country. Now, one of the things that makes this talk quite different from the last one is that we have to bear in mind a very fundamental part of political debate that has been since politics began. And that is the debate about what is the role of the individual as opposed to what is the role of the state. Because for much of cancer prevention, that is a critical question along with the science. And there is a very strong and proud tradition that goes back a very long way in most political traditions that the state should interfere in the lives of individuals as little as possible. And this is on both the left and the right of the political spectrum, although the way it's couched is different in, term, in, in, in these different political traditions in the UK. And this presents quite a challenge to how we intervene in cancer, because, as I'll come on to, for some of the things that need to be done with cancer, only the state can do them, and in some, it's maybe the state or maybe the individual. And we need to make some kind of choice as to where the balance of responsibility lies. One of the things that makes it particularly difficult to deal uh, with this in many areas is that certain bits of the press claim this tradition largely randomly through the week. Uh, and we, you have uh, in the same newspaper often screaming headlines about how killjoys are trying to do nanny state uh, when they're trying to argue for things that will reduce cancer, and in other bits of the same newspaper, in a few pages before or after, how various things should be banned. And I've counter, counter uh, 
poised to, rather unfairly, just from the Daily Mail, I could have chosen other newspapers, uh, a, uh, a big push against uh, re- uh, making clear guidelines on alcohol, uh, which is important for cancer, uh, and a tragic single case of a girl uh, being killed on a bouncy castle leading to this front page in the, in the Daily Mail. So I think it's important to, to accept that the press is not always consistent on this, but they are consistently likely to say that there's nanny states. That is a kind of, that is a, an absolute certainty. And therefore it's important that people in public health must respect this tradition, and I think they often forget it, but they also must not be cowed by it. And I think what we have to do is find a way which actually balances the need to maintain a curb on the role of the state, but also do the things that only the state can do. And I think I just these are two points about my own way of conceptualising this. For those who are sceptical of the state's right to intervene for public health, uh, but are persuadable, not everybody is, certain things make it likely they will accept it, and certain things make it much less likely they will accept it. The things that make it likely that people will accept the role of the state are if there's very strong scientific evidence, neutrally given, so you can trust it, not just advocacy. There is a very strong effect, either in terms of what the risk factor is or what we can do. There seems to be a sort of uh, general societal view that infections are in a different group, probably because if you protect one person from infection, you protect everybody. It's a collective thing. There is generally a different way of conceptualising it when we're talking about vulnerable people, particularly children, uh, and then people tend to be convinced more if it is cost-effective and if it helps to protect the the healthy working-age population. Things that tend to make people much more cautious are when it removes existing rights from individuals, when it removes pleasures, and that's an important one. That is actually a genuinely important one. I think public health people often fail fully to uh, take into account. When it exposes citizens to the law, which they previously wouldn't have, if it provides barriers to trade, expands government, and they tend to be, in my view, rightly cautious about unintended consequences. So these are the sort of the balancing things between the two extremes. And linked to that, there is a ladder of state intervention or medical intervention from you just leave it up to individuals, say it's up to them to do their own research, thank you very much, through informing, engaging with industry, mass voluntary programmes, so ones where people can choose to be part of them, but they are nevertheless mass, vaccination screening, for example, nudge taxes, things that are not designed to make them punitive, but they're designed just to push people slightly in one direction, regulation, heavy taxation, and a complete ban, or indeed the use of the criminal justice system. So there is a, there is a ladder of intervention, and where we should be uh, in terms of our public health depends on uh, a number of factors, but we should work out at any given point how far up the ladder it is reasonable to go. Let's start off with infections, because as I say, infections is an area where most people, I think, are very comfortable with the state or the medical profession taking a very active stance. I slightly unfairly made uh, uh, a slightly uh, possibly derogatory comment about the fact that in uh, Dr. Tulp's time, he was around uh, the time when Gresham uh, was getting off the ground, uh, famously portrayed here by uh, Rembrandt, uh, he said that cancer was contagious. And I implied that that was uh, not very uh, accurate. That is not very accurate for most cancers, but there are some cancers which have a very strong infectious driver. And if these can be identified... Uh, then we can either prevent them or treat them, depending on what we're dealing with. And most people do consider this to be the role of the state and medicine. And there are several important cancers, both in the UK and globally, where uh, infection is very important. This is not an exhaustive list by any means, uh, but these are some of the very important uh, cancers with a strong infectious driver. Cervical cancer, I think most people in the UK are aware of this uh, now, Uh, I'll come on to that in slightly greater detail, uh, driven by human papillomavirus, wart virus. Liver cancer, uh, it's a relatively small part of UK burden, but a very large part of of the world burden uh, from hepatitis B and C. Uh, Some stomach cancers and a rare uh, lymphoma will come on to, uh, caused by H. pylori bacteria. But there are also lymphomas caused by a variety of viruses, 
HIV makes many, many cancers much uh, more common, uh, and so on. So there's quite a long list when we look at it. And my, uh, my prediction would be that if we rolled forward 50 years, several cancers where we don't currently know about an infectious trigger will have been found to have one. So I think this is one of the areas where we may see advances, particularly in things like lymphomas. Now, starting off with cervical cancer, which is uh, a very important uh, uh, program here in the UK. There are around uh, 2,500 cervical cancer cases in the UK, and it is the commonest cancer in young women. This is uh, different from many of the other cancers. It's not something which is primarily in the elderly. Uh, Two viruses, HPV-16 and HPV-18, are responsible for the great majority, probably about 70%, of all the the cervical cancer we have in the UK. And we have uh, a vaccine. In fact, we have more than one vaccine, uh, two on the market here and uh, several in development or in other markets, which are over 95% effective. If you vaccinate someone before they get infected, they will not go on to get that infection. It's... If we uh, continue with the current UK coverage of this vaccine, which is currently in school-aged children, and it's important it starts before people have sexual activity, so it has to be in girls, it's likely to reduce cervical cancer by about 50% over the next few generations, the next generation. And uh, we've now got some new cancers, uh, cancer vaccines coming along, or HPV vaccines, which will extend the number of uh, um, cancer-causing viruses that are protected. Uh, and we're probably going to get to the point very soon when we can prevent virtually all cervical cancer in the UK just by vaccination. Cervical cancer also, though, has given us the opportunity to do another thing, which is uh, you get your HPV um, uh, infection usually very early on, early, some of you very early on in your sexual, uh, sexual, sexually active life. Uh, and then there is a period in which there are abnormal cells, precancerous cells, uh, and then the cancer develops. And the other thing that that has allowed us to do uh, is to do screening for cervical cancer in young women. And what you're aiming to do is pick them up. This is different from screening for, let's say, breast cancer, which we talked about last time, where what you're aiming to do is pick up early cancer. This is uh, picking up cells which would go on to develop to cancer but are not cancer yet. And uh, at the cost of some overtreatment, and there's no doubt that is the cost of this, it has picked up a substantial number of people who would have gone on to get cervical cancer. And what you can see here is what happened when we introduced the National Cancer, uh, Cervical Cancer Screening Service. Uh, a significant reduction has, fo- has followed since that time just from this screening program. So a 43% reduction since screening began. And as I say, we should be able to at least halve, probably more than halve the remainder uh, over the next generation because of vaccination. We do need to make the tests for this better because that means that fewer people will have unnecessary procedures and they are improving and we're actually using uh, the infectious DNA uh, to help us do that. It is so important we don't get too parochial about this. Uh, Cervical cancer uh, is a very serious problem here in the UK but is a much greater problem in many other parts of the world. It's one of the leading cancers in much of Africa uh, and Asia. Uh, and in those areas, if we had cervi- a, a, a human papilloma virus vaccines widely rolled out, we could have a really major impact uh, on cancer. Moving on to hepatitis B and hepatocellular carcinoma, or liver cancer, it's, as I say, a rare cause of liver cancer here in the UK. Other things, particularly associated with cirrhosis, tend to be more important. But it's a major one in Africa and Asia. Uh, and worldwide, uh, it accounts for around 80% of uh, hepatitis C, uh, so of, of, of uh, hepatocellular carcinoma. We do have very good vaccines, again, for hepatitis B. And when Taiwan introduced a hepatitis B vaccination program, what they found was the cohort, uh, which actually uh, was pre-vaccination, had really high rates of hepatocellular carcinoma by the age of 30, and the post-vaccination cohort, it, it hadn't completely disappeared, but it had substantially uh, reduced. Rolling out hepatitis B vaccines across the world will have a massive impact on this major cause of cancer mortality, particularly in developing countries. 
So those are two examples, and there are others, but those are two major examples where a vaccine to prevent a viral disease can prevent subsequent cancer. There is actually also an alternative approach, which is to treat infections and can prevent cancer that way. And the one, the one I've chosen to illustrate this with is H. pylori infections, which, again, many of you will, may, will know about uh, because it's something which is a major cause of peptic ulcer disease. H. pylori seems to increase the risk for non-cardiogastric cancer, which is the, major, the main sort of gastric cancer, by six to eight times. Uh, and it's also a major risk for a pretty rare uh, but important lymphoma called multoma, which is of the uh, mania of the stomach. Um, it, it, at the same time, slightly reduces... The, uh, the risk of getting an adenocarcinoma. So there is a, there is a sort of, this isn't just a one-way uh, street, but the, ca- the stomach cancer is the more important of these in terms of the risk. So does treating H. pylori early prevent cancer? Well, I think that although the evidence is not absolutely certain, everything points to the answer being yes. So if we look at places which have done lots of trials of this, and they've tended to be in Asia because that's where a lot of the cases are, uh, the risk ratio, and I'll talk about risk ratios through this, or relative risks, of 0.65 means a 65% of what it was before, that much reduction. A 65, a 0.65 reduction uh, uh, in in fairly large uh, studies, uh, as I say, mainly done in China may not work if you wait until people have got precancerous cells, so you may need to do it relatively early. Now, it's estimated that around a third of UK stomach cancer is H. pylori-associated. Smoking and diet are also important, as we'll come on to. So first thing is, combined, about 75% of stomach cancers should be preventable, and this is a cancer which is very difficult to treat. But uh, in terms of the uh, H. pylori, Probably the fact that people are treating H. pylori to reduce peptic ulceration has led to part of the steady decline in stomach cancer incidence that we've seen over the last decades. So this is a cancer which, again, is going down. 62% reduction in incidence since the 1970s. And that line, as you can see, shows no signs of flattening out. So those are infectious causes where I think there's general support for state uh, action. Then I think there is generally support for state action against occupational causes of cancer where the job someone does, through no fault of their own, exposes them to particular uh, risks for cancer. Now, occupational cancers have always been with us and they will vary over history depending on what industries there are at the moment. So they, they vary over time. So, for an example, one of the earliest recognised ones was in chimney sweeps, an extremely unpleasant scrotal cancer, which started on the outside and then basically worked its way in, in people who were chimney sweeps. I've never seen a case of this. No one in my generation will see a case of this. But this was actually a very common cancer at the point that chimney sweeps were a very common profession. Around 4% of UK cancers are probably uh, due to occupation now, and of those, probably about a quarter are relatively uh, straightforwardly preventable uh, by measures that are, are, are possible uh, in an in a, in a economically viable way. It's important to understand that this is across a whole range of different industries and due to lots of different things. Some of them are dusts, some of them are chemicals, some of them are exposures to things like uh, radiation. Uh, and many, many different professions will have cancers particularly associated with them. For example, carpenters will have one set of cancers associated. Leather workers will have a different set of cancers associated with them. The major ones tend to be lung, uh, skin cancer, uh, cyanonasal one, which is largely dust-related, uh, bladder, which is often chemical-related, uh, and uh, larynx, which can be uh, some combination Put another way, what are the big risk factors for cancer in the UK? And this is a list of some of the important ones. Top of the list, by some distance, is uh, asbestos. Uh, And that causes uh, really quite significant numbers of cancers. Uh, Silica dust, which you can get from a number of different things, coal mining, for example, uh, is uh, next on the list. Diesel exhaust, mineral oils, paint, uh, various industrial chemicals, radon would be then further down in terms of their importance. 
I'm just going to choose one, uh, mesothelioma. Mesothelioma is an extremely unpleasant, aggressive cancer, with very diff- which is extremely difficult to treat, also almost entirely preventable. 95%, about 95% of the risk is related to exposure to asbestos, and almost all of that is occupational. Now, the idea that there's a link between asbestos and lung cancer is now widely accepted, but it wasn't by the medical profession for quite some time. I've quoted from a Lancet editorial, it would be ludicrous to outlaw this valuable and often irreplaceable material uh, in all circumstances, as asbestos can save more lives than it can possibly endanger. The people said this because of its fire safety properties, actually, that it was used to prevent uh, spread of fire in particular. We really didn't recognise that uh, asbestos was a major cause of cancer uh, until relatively late in the last century. Uh, The first serious limitations were put on UK use in the mid-80s, and it wasn't really properly banned until the late 1990s. And we are paying a heavy price for that uh, now. This is what has happened to mesothelioma rates over uh, the period since around 1980. And because there's quite a significant time lag between exposure and getting the cancer, uh, the cancer rates, although we've stopped now using asbestos, and it's much more uh, very heavily regulated, have been steadily climbing and only peaked in the last few years. They will now steadily decline because the exposures are now stopping, and sadly because many people who are exposed are dying uh, of mesothelioma. I regret to say that when I retire from medicine, assuming I manage my full period, there will still be more cases of cancer than when I actually qualified in medicine. Uh, And this is completely preventable, basically, cancer from occupational reasons. If I'd been giving this talk 100, 100 years ago, I would have talked about melanoma as an occupational cancer, as a cancer of fishermen, of uh, farmers, of people who had outdoor uh, work. It's now a very common cancer. It's uh, it's almost entirely uh, recreational uh, for uh, the majority of people or or done in in ordinary life. I think everyone knows extended exposure to sunlight and sunburn are the big risk factors for this. Uh, And it's therefore, because richer people can go to sunnier climes, it's uh, more often, it's one of the cancers that is actually more common in people of higher wealth than, uh, than lower wealth, which is not true for many other cancers. Uh, I would like to call out in particular the risk of sunbeds because this is something which really is uh, not to do with going to beautiful places. It's just to do with going brown. Uh, And uh, as you can see, the relative risk, if you're on a sunbed before the age of 35, you're almost doubling your risk of getting melanoma subsequently. And although modern sunbeds claim to be safe, there is no evidence that is true. Finally, in an area which is, again, the preserve uh, of science, uh, genetic screening and other stratification to identify people who are particularly high risk of cancer. We're really now going through an explosion in our understanding about who it is who is most likely to get cancer. And in many cancers, there are particular genetic uh, variants and particular genetic inheritances which which make it likely that you will go on to get uh, cancer with a pretty high rate. And ones that people are particularly uh, aware of are are the BRCA genes uh, 1 and 2, much popularised by Angelina Jolie, who had herself tested and decided on the balance of the very high risk genetically she had to have a double mastectomy, which I think brought this to people's attention. Clearly, surgery on that sort is the most radical, uh, invasive manifestation of someone reducing their cancer risk if they have a high, particularly high genetic risk of it. But as we move on to uh, an era where we have drugs to prevent cancer, we're going to be able to, for some people, and increasingly large numbers of people, identify that you're at particularly high risk in exactly the same way we would, for example, with cholesterol tests for heart disease, and give a drug, and the one that's currently, ones that are currently being recommended in the UK are tamoxifen and loroxifene, but there, there will be others for sure, which you then use as a prophylactic drug to prevent the subsequent development of cancer. This is a direction of travel, not for all cancers, and definitely not for all people, uh, but for some. So there will be some cancers for some people where we will, tr- we will prevent them in just the same way as we prevent heart disease, primary prevention of heart disease 
in, uh, in, in the future. So that's things which are um, uh, things uh, which I think most people would agree are the role of the state. I'm now going to move in the second half of this talk onto the things which are the uh, joint responsibility of the state and the individual. And I think for all of them, we need to make a call as to what is the role of the state and what is the role of the, of the individual. And the front line in the battle against cancer is smoking, illustrated, I think, rather nicely by this Vincent van Gogh uh, painting. 28%, so the best part of a third of cancers in the UK are caused by smoking or smoking related, strongly smoking-related. And if we talk about lung cancer, which has, as we'll go on to, a very poor outlook, four in five lung cancers are caused by smoking. Lung cancer in the UK causes the most deaths. But smoking does not just stop there when it comes to, to uh, risk of cancer. It contributes to laryngeal, larynx, throat box, esophagus, the uh, gullet, uh, mouth, bladder, pancreas, kidney, liver, stomach, bowel, cervix, ovary, and nasal cancers, amongst others, and I have not, not listed all of them. The ones I've asterisked, the risk of if you smoke is five times or more the risk if you do not smoke. Smoking is enormously high risk if what you're wanting to do is try and prevent cancer. Now, the evidence for this took a while to accumulate, and the first bit of evidence was simply to look at the fact that cancer, lung cancer in particular, was going up at about the same rate as smoking rates were going up, but with a 20-year lag. You just look at that and you think, could there be a link? The second uh, line of evidence, which really came from the 1930s onwards, was an epidemiological technique called case control. And in case control, you take someone with a case of lung cancer, or a group of people with a case of lung cancer, take a group of people who are almost identical but with no lung cancer, and say, what is different between those people? And what this demonstrated was the people who had lung cancer had much higher rates historically of smoking than the people who did not have lung cancer. The third, uh, so those, uh, those ones, those, both of those provided reasonably good indirect evidence. And we had that really by uh, the 1940s. That wasn't sufficient uh, to be able to um, take things on. So we then moved on to an even stronger uh, form of science, which is what is called cohort studies, where you follow people over time, looking at their initial risks and then seeing what happens to them subsequently. And the most famous of these probably was what's called the uh, British Doctor Study, uh, done by uh, uh, Doll and Bradford Hill and subsequently Pito, uh, which followed uh, over 30,000 British do male doctors in the main um, from 1951. And within four years, it was clear that the, the thing I've got here is, the, uh, is an extract from their BMJ paper from 1954, that if the, on the right, the bar you see, is people who smoked 25 or more cigarettes a day, the second to the right is smokers of 15 to 24 a day, right down to no cases in the people who did not smoke. That was pretty convincing evidence, and other people did similar studies which came to the same conclusion. 1954. In 1960, a poll organised by American Cancer Society found that only a third of US doctors, despite all these lines of evidence, agreed that cigarette smoking should be considered a major cause of lung cancer, demonstrating a number of things, including that doctors don't tend to read medical journals. This was not helped by the fact that bits of the tobacco industry, although their own scientists agreed there was a link and actually accepted the science, decided to try and turn this into speculative science for as long as possible, essentially to extend the period before people really registered this. And the point which most people think, in a sense, we really started to take things seriously was a report by the US Surgeon General, uh, Luther Terry, called Smoking and Health in 1964. And that really was the point where the evidence was pulled together in a way which was impossible uh, to dispute, although uh, many people uh, paid for by the lobby did actually continue to dispute. And the reason this is important is that as we saw in the last talk, if you look at lung cancer, very common cancer, 10-year survival rates in lung cancer are abysmally low and have hardly shifted in the last decades, depressingly. So this is an almost entirely preventable cancer with an incredibly bad outlook. 
Just to look at some of the other numbers we're talking about, so for lung cancer, the relative risk is nine, nine times the chance of getting lung cancer if you smoke. Larynx, it's seven times. Upper digestive tract, about three and a half times. Bladder, about three times. Pancreas, about two and a half times. These are very substantial increases in risk. If you don't smoke, you're basically saving yourself all those risks. And unsurprisingly, uh, the heavier you smoke, the more cancer you get. This uh, advertisement, for example, uh, crave an A for your throat's sake, uh, not if you like it, um, uh, looked, uh, you know, if you compare uh, people who've got, in terms of risk, you know, if they smoke one to seven cigarettes a day, substantially increased risk at 1.4, but if you go up to 20 plus cigarettes a day, your relative risk will increase to 20, 20, sorry, 1.4 to 24. Very, very massive increase. So it is dose dependent. But the only safe amount of smoking is none. And then some further work demonstrated that it wasn't that once you'd smoked, that was it, so you might as well carry on smoking because you'd done the damage and that was, you know, end, end of story, basically. If you stop smoking, then your chance of uh, getting cancer substantially reduces. And this study on the left, which is more uh, work by Pito, uh, compares people who continued smoking, those who stopped at age 50, which is the second row down, those who stopped at age 30, and those who never, never smoked. Basically, if you stop smoking by the age of 30, your cancer risk is only a bit higher than those people who actually uh, never smoked at all when it comes to lung cancer, slightly different from some of the other ones. And this is a different way of showing this just for all-cause mortality. Basically, it is never too late to stop smoking. Around 19% of all cancer in the UK is attributable to smoking, higher in men. So if, we, if start, smoking had been stopped 50 years ago, we would have 20% basically less cancer than we have, have today. And this just demonstrates how that's distributed between the different cancers, in particular lung, bladder, kidney, pancreas, uh, esophagus, and to a certain extent, bowel and stomach. So here is smoking, and this is where I come back to this question about what is the reasonable ladder of state intervention? We have very strong evidence of cause and effect. The science here is irrefutable. A very unpleasant, common, and almost universally fatal disease, and it is addictive. So once someone is smoking, in a sense, the cigarettes take them over when it comes to this habit. What is the role of the state? What does the state think is the right thing to do? Is it a criminal offence? We, for example, have some drugs as criminal offence if you possess them. Is it, should you be banning people on harming, harming themselves on the basis it's highly addictive? Should we help them stop the addiction, pay for it? Should we ban them helping, harming other people, especially children? And I think there's an interesting one here. 74% of smokers, according to YouGov poll and their reputable polling company, think smoking should be banned in cars with children. That's smokers think that. So this is something which, in my view, is not terribly controversial at that level. Heavy taxation, we've accepted that for a while. Stop advertising for smoking. It's a real battle to even reduce it. And advertising against smoking. Essentially, we as a society have gone halfway up that ladder confidently and are a bit queasy about going much further. A lot of people talk about responsibility deals with the cigarette industry. Um, None of them are public health people. I'm just going to illustrate this uh, with uh, this advertisement that was only pulled uh, in 1997. Uh, most people think that this was aimed at children, although the company hotly dispute that. I'm not m- making a view. But what is objectively true is it moved from 1% to 32% of the underage market whilst that advertisement was going on. UK smoking and lung cancer rates, there will be a roughly 20-year lag. But the good news is that little by little, smoking in the UK is coming down. Every year it is coming down. Uh, And there will be 20 years later, in terms of cancer, we will reap a very positive benefit from that in men. In women, because smoking rates went up for quite a while towards the middle and later half of the last century, uh, that trend has not started to go down yet, but it will in due course. Now, alcohol is much more difficult, both scientifically and politically, than smoking. In my view, in public health, the arguments on smoking are simply clear. When it comes to alcohol, uh, lung cancer is extremely common, always fatal, and the link with smoking is almost is, is extraordinarily strong. And there's also a very strong 
cause that, that when it comes to uh, alcohol, there is a strong causal relationship with some relatively rare cancers, but they definitely exist, and a smaller but still significant relationship with some common cancers, particularly breast cancer and bowel cancer. I'll come on to the data on that. Politically, though, it's important to recognise that only 20%, around 20% of the UK adult population smoke, down from 46% uh, when we started off, and passive smoking causes cancer. So stopping someone smoking actually protects the people around them in a way that alcohol, that is not true. So I think this makes it politically quite a different kind of environment, whereas only about 20% of the adult population do not drink. Scientifically, it's also a lot harder to work out how much people drink. Uh, and that, you know, that, that makes a lot of these calculations quite difficult. Drinking patterns vary during the week. So, for example, most people who are in work, in work tend to drink more at Fridays and weekends than they do during the week, not always. Uh, and over the life course, I've compared two points in the life course and two drinking experiences. Uh, there are many others. Uh, people misremember and they seldom uh, overestimate how much they drink. I can say that again, clear scientific evidence of that. There's a recall bias. So people who've told they've got cancer and then asked how much alcohol they have may well have a different answer to people who haven't been told they've got cancer because they're trying to search back through their history to say, what is it that actually caused me to get cancer in the first place? And the effects of alcohol are likely to be to do with your cumulative lifetime risk rather than exactly how you're drinking at this point in time. This makes actually the science of this not altogether straightforward. But this is a best guess scientifically at this point in time about the link between alcohol and, the, and cancer. And I'm going to start off with the gastrointestinal tract. And that's because basically the place you put your alcohol is into your gut. So unsurprisingly, that is the place which actually if there's going to be a problem, uh, the problem tends to be first. And if you look uh, at the uh, meta-analyses of the studies, and I really want to put some health warnings around the exact numbers, but there does seem to be a significant uh, dose-response effect, so the more you drink, the bigger the risk, particularly for mouth cancers, th- throat cancers, uh, and esophageal cancers, gullet uh, cancers, and a rather smaller um, uh, association uh, with stomach uh, and uh, of different sorts. The one that I want, though, to point to is the colorectum on the right. The reason I'm pointing to that is the increase in risk from alcohol is relatively modest, but this is a very common cancer. So a small increase on a very big number actually leads to quite a large number of cases if you look at the country country as a whole. So there is a link, a moderate but important link between alcohol and bowel cancer. I think it is now broadly accepted. And there is now also solid uh, evidence of a link between alcohol intake and breast cancer. Again, one of the commonest cancers uh, in women. Um, If you assume that a UK unit is around 8 grams of alcohol, uh, and a large glass of wine might be about 25 grams of alcohol uh, absolute, uh, then arbitrarily, just taking arbitrarily, dividing people into light, moderate and heavy drinkers, uh, the relative risk of breast cancer for women for light would be 1.04. That's a very small increase on uh, what, uh, what they would normally have. It is an increase. But by the time you get up to heavy alcohol, you're increasing your risk about 1.6 times. And heavy doesn't mean alcoholic. It means what most people would consider to be a moderately heavy social drinker uh, who just has uh, two or three large glasses of wine a day. But there isn't much, uh, there's a small link link between alcohol and a number of uh, other cancers, not quite so strong. And there's an inverse relationship, in fact, with uh, some of the uh, lymphomas for reasons that aren't absolutely clear. But it's nowhere near uh, overwhelms the negative effect of cancer on particularly bowel and colon, uh, uh, colon and breast cancer. So, at the moment, with current state of science, this is the attributable fraction, we think, that alcohol provides, heavy alcohol provides, to UK uh, cancers. Quite a bit to mouth, uh, esophagus, and maybe liver cancers, but they're relatively rare, uh, and a small but non-trivial uh, contribution to breast and bowel cancer. Now, clearly, alcohol has many other negative effects uh, if, you, if you drink too much, particularly on your liver uh, and uh, brain and, and a variety of other, other areas, but this is the cancer risk. The third area is around dietary mix. 
And there is clear evidence that a diet high in vegetables, fruit and fibre and lower in red uh, and processed meat is associated with lower colon cancer. That's clear. The association is clear. The first person who really popularised this in the popular mind uh, was a remarkable uh, surgeon called Dennis Burkitt, uh, who observed the fact there was a lot more bowel cancer in his UK practice than his Ugandan practice, uh, worked out that Africans ate more fibre and said fibre was the, uh, the reason. The, quest, the answer actually is a lot more complicated than that. So the first paragraph I've put there, clear evidence that this combination is good for your gut, in particular your colon, is clear. Which bits of it are good for your gut is now really not clear. So what we can't do is say, if you cut out sausages, this is what would happen, or if you added in more all bran, that is what would happen. What you can say is if you have an overall healthy balanced diet, uh, your risk of colon cancer will go down. And at the moment, again, with the current state of science, and I consider this is less strong science than the smoking by some distance, uh, it's estimated that around 9% of UK cancers are related to diet, particularly uh, bowel cancers. Probably the most difficult challenge is obesity. And this is difficult for two reasons. The first one is that obesity in the UK and in every uh, Western country and many developing countries now is steadily increasing. And this is, compare, this is just UK data looking at people who are obese, uh, uh, which is defined in, for this purpose as having a bit body mass index of greater than 30. It's, just, it's, it's a way of just measuring obesity. Over two decades, obesity has gone from 13% to 20%. 26% in men, and from 16% to 24% in women, and it is still rising. So anything where cancer is linked to obesity means there's going to be more cancer in due course, in contrast to things like smoking, which, although very bad, are at least heading in the right direction. So is there a link? And secondly, is there much we can do about it? Well, I think that the evidence that there's a link is now reasonably strong for quite a number of cancers. And you won't probably be able to read each one of these, but I'm going to, at the top, anything that's far to the right from the central line, the further right it is, the bigger the risk, the bigger the association with obesity. And if it's left of the line, there is some evidence that being obese actually protects you from the cancer or, more accurately, is associated with having less cancer. These are associations. They don't, of course, prove causality. And that's an important caveat to that. There's pretty clear evidence that there's a substantial association, but not anywhere near the levels of things like smoking, with esophageal adenocarcinoma, thyroid cancer, colon cancer, uh, some of the kidney cancers, some of the liver cancers, uh, possibly for, with myeloma. And then you get down to rectal cancer and um, some rather smaller associations, but reasonably strong ones. A couple of cancers in men, then there appears to be a negative association, so fatter people have less of it, if you were to use a slightly pejorative term. Um, and the reason for that is probably because if people smoke, they tend to be uh, less obese, all other things being uh, equal. In women, the risk uh, is broadly the same, but there's one important uh, one to highlight, endometrial cancer, which is a relatively common uh, cancer, obviously only in women. And here the relative risk looks as if it's about 1.6, and gallbladder risk looks rather higher than it does in men. So in women in particular, but in both men and women, it does look as if some quite important cancers have a strong but not overwhelming association with obesity. And therefore, assuming it is causal, or at least there are things that are combined causal, these cancers can predictably be expected to go up by more than you'd expect just from age alone. And if we look at this in global terms, it's estimated at the moment that in high-income cancers, around 5% of cancers are related to high body mass index, based on those numbers. But importantly, a quarter of that number are already caused by the increase in obesity we've seen since 1982. This is going to get worse. There's a lot of momentum uh, demographically behind this. And postmenopausal breast cancer, uterine cancer, and colon cancer contribute over half of this risk. So this is another area where breast cancer uh, is very heavily involved. 
So how can we uh, sort, of, sort of sum up where we are? I think it's not easy to boil prevention of cancers down to a headline. Here are some attempts. Uh, some are more accurate than others. But I hope I've convinced you that actually, if you add together lots of small interventions, we actually could make a very substantial dent on the incidence of cancer we've got at the moment. Some of these we can just do, like preventing cervical cancer, which should become an almost historical memory uh, in in a couple of generations' time. Uh, Some of them require much more difficult uh, balances between what the state and the individual are to do and a balance between people's uh, perception of risk. The big ones clearly uh, are in terms of, and this is a Cancer Research UK infographic, uh, and it's only indicative, but what are the relative contributions? Way ahead of them is don't smoke. If you could just take smoking out of the equation, the impact on cancer would be extraordinary. Keeping a healthy weight, eating fruit and vegetables, and drinking less alcohol, all the things that people moan about, public health people wittering on about, combined do actually contribute very uh, substantially. Being sun smart, i.e. putting a hat on, uh, and eating less processed and red meat and a high fibre diet. And then uh, towards the end, um, uh, being active. And I didn't talk about salt, but salt is a small risk for stomach cancer. But smoking overwhelmingly is the most important of these. So remembering that around 40% of cancers in this country are preventable, And many of these are not easily treatable. There are many cancers which are treatable. They often are not the ones which are preventable. I think in every point in history, we have to make a decision for each of these risk factors how far up the ladder of intervention by the state in people's lives we are prepared to go. And I hope you would agree that there is an extremely strong case for going, in my view, a long way up the ladder when it comes to smoking. An addictive thing which can affect everyone around you as well as yourself where we have no easy treatments available if you continue. But for many other of these, clearly it is not appropriate to go to the top of the ladder of intervention, but nor do I think we should be right down and just say, let's leave it up to individuals. They should just do what they want. And I think at any point in history, we need to decide where is the balance of risk, where can the state intervene? Thank you very much. For more information, please go to www.gresham.ac.uk.